Welcome to the MuseCast, where we squeeze every last drop of inspiration out of Sunday's sermon. Hey everybody, Dan Kent here. Uh, Shauna is on her second week of vacation, so she'll be with us next week um, if everything goes according to plan. If she gets uh, beamed back into her spaceship and brought back to her home planet, then uh, we might not see her for a while yet. But uh, as of right now, the plan is that uh, we will have uh, Shauna back next week. This week, we uh, had Jim Bilby um, give a great sermon that he titled, Where Are You, O Lord? And it was about the hiddenness of God. And this is a topic that I have um, uh, read quite a bit about. Um, and I was actually talking to Jim before the sermon. I said, I I really think that God's hiddenness is a trickier problem for Christians than even the problem of evil. And uh, he seemed to agree with that. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's fun. to. It's been 20 years since I've done any reading in this, uh, but it was fun to have some of those ideas kind of re-stimulated. Um, I have no supernatural guests from the great beyond this week, like last week, but uh, uh, I, I had fun with that. I hope you did as well. Um, maybe someday we'll have um, Vincent Van Gogh back on the show, but uh, for now he is back on that. Well, actually here. I think, yeah, he's back on the shelf. There he is. <laughs> All right. Um, Sermary, uh, where are you, O Lord? That was Jim's uh, sermon. And he he kind of basically starts off with this problem that God seems to be hidden. And uh, he says that uh, Christians have taken one of two paths uh, in response to this problem. The first path is to just simply deny that it, the the reality of God's hiddenness is it's just not true that God is hidden. And uh, he gave an example of people who take uh, Romans one twenty, where Paul talks about how God's qualities are obvious in His creation, and so nobody is without excuse, and and we should all be aware of of God's presence. Um, and if we're not aware of God's presence, that is a problem that is on us. And uh, Jim pushed back against that and and kind of held the same position that I held, which is that 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 leads to some pretty shameful judging of people who have a hard time experiencing God, uh, like myself uh, included. Uh, Jim took a different path. Jim was saying that a better approach is is to uh, just affirm the reality that God is in at least in some sense hidden there is a hiddenness to god and he he looks at micah 3 4 as an example of where god says that he has taken back his presence or he's taken away his presence from his people when they sinned and um and so that's the 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 approach so let's look at this idea that sometimes god can not be present that there, there could be a sense in which god does hide himself and uh the the psalmist multiple times talks about this as well um I think most of these are from David, but uh, why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Uh, That was from Psalm 10, verse 1. Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Psalm 88, uh, 13 and 14. I cry out to you, O Lord. Why do you cast me off? Why do you hide your face from me? Psalm 44, verses 23 and 24. Rouse yourself, God. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awaken. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? 
expression. So David uh, definitely had these experiences of God's hiddenness and and felt like God was not there. And so um, I don't know about you, but I I I don't want to say that um, I have greater faith than than David. <laughs> I, I'm not really willing to uh, to 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 do that. Um, so what do we do with this? So what he says is that let's just admit that God could be more obvious, that that God could, God has the capability of being just blatantly, starkly obvious. And he he gives a couple uh, fun thought experiments where, you know, consider, could God write in the sky, hey, it's me, God, and, and give some type of verbal kind of how are you that would prove that God is really there? Or even more explicitly, uh, could God go to an atheist? And Jim uses uh, Richard Dawkins, who is the author of uh, The God Delusion, which is a famous book uh, defending atheism, but really more attacking Christianity than defending atheism. But uh, whatever, he is a famous atheist. And there's his picture right there. There he is. Friendly looking fella. Uh, But Jim asks the question, could God go to Uh, Richard Dawkins, and all of a sudden, just out of the kitchen floor, let's say, uh, appear as a burning shrub. And this burning shrub is God, just like he appeared to Moses. And and this shrub starts talking to Richard Dawkins, telling Richard only things that God could know. And basically just prove to Richard that God is real. Couldn't God do that? And, uh, you know, of course, I think most reasonable people would say if God does exist, then God could do that. Uh, so the question is, is, is why not? Why doesn't uh, God do this? Why doesn't God just make it so that Richard Dawkins believes? Um, and Jim offers two sort of uh, responses to that. The first one is mere belief is not really what God is after. God is after something way beyond uh, mere belief. And the second thing is that the type of evidence, and this is related, by the way, the second thing is that the type of evidence that God gives us about God's existence, it's purposive. Uh, what that what that means is, is God is strategic in the way that God uh, gives evidence of God's self. And um, because the fact is, is that Christianity is not all about what's in our heads, but rather it's what's in our hearts. It's what we do. It's who we become. Uh, God has to goad us to act, to kind of compel us to act out uh, our faith. And, and there's something about seeking God that has this inherent kind of value to it in terms of how it shapes us. And, uh, and so that's, that's part of it. And so, uh, then, uh, Jim talks about kind of four ways that the, um, hiddenness of God sort of makes sense to him. That, that is, uh, when, when Jim feels the sense that God is hidden, uh, these are four ways that he kind of four principles or four ideas that he goes back to to help him understand that. The first one is that um, we tend to have these unreasonable expectations about God's sense of presence, that God's obviousness. And um, and we have to be really careful with our expectations of what God must do, what God must be like, how revealed God must be. And uh, Jim shares this really great uh, idea from his wife, who is a family therapist. And she says that expectations are always uh, premeditated disappointments. And I, I don't know about you, but for me, 
I have experienced that. That's the experience of of uh, expectations that I've had. Every time you have an expectation, you are setting yourself up for potential disappointment. Now, I think with God, uh, the, the a, a simultaneous truth is that even though our expectations about God uh, a lot of times will lead to disappointment, and in fact, I mean, look at Jesus himself, where you have the entire uh, Israelite religion expecting this Messiah to, to be a certain way, uh, to come and conquer Rome, to come and bring military victory and to uh, uh, establish this nation. Um, that's what they were expecting. And wow, were they disappointed when the Messiah came and <laughs> died on a cross. And so uh, in, in many ways, our expectations can be disappointed. However, uh, because it is God and because God is good and because uh, we trust God, we also know know that uh, a lot of times it's kind of another reason why it's futile to have expectations is because our expectations, even when they're right, fall uh, gloriously short of how awesome God is. And uh, and so unreasonable expectations is is the first thing to be careful, uh, be careful of. The second thing is that it's true, it's undeniable that the Bible does talk about how our personal sin in our life does guard us from experiencing God's presence. And um, and Jim talked about a few examples of how that might happen and why that might happen. And I, for me, it's like, yeah, I, I feel that. If I'm doing sinful things or stupid things, I absolutely do not uh, feel God's presence. I, I, I feel this strain in my relationship with God. Number three, and oh, this one was heavy, man. This one hit. Uh, he says that another thing that can get in the way of experiencing God's presence is this over-reliance on arguments. That is to to live your faith out in your head and uh, and to always have to have like this this uh proof and things like that. And and you know, for me, man, that's that's definitely been the case. I have a hard time experiencing God's presence. A lot of times I rest, I rely on these arguments uh, to keep me grounded. And I think that arguments are great, And and uh, but I think that arguments should be a means to an end, and um, they should get us into something more dynamic and relational with God other than just sitting in our ivory tower thinking about uh, these proofs. And number four, um, just always reflect back on Jesus, uh, because in Jesus, you have this more succinct, tactile, clear image of what God's character is. And um, and when you think of like the the attributes of God, his omniscience and omnipotence and omnipresence and all of that, it, it's very fuzzy. And, and but when you think of Jesus, it's this very clear sort of picture of God's character and, and that clarity uh, can create that sense of presence um, that I think is really important. Man, uh, I wish... Jim had more time to talk about uh, more of the issues related to this because the, I think a lot of people um, struggle with God's hiddenness, uh, the fact that God isn't obvious. He's not, he doesn't walk around with humanity like he did in the garden with Adam and Eve. And the disciples were lucky enough to walk around with Jesus, who we believe is God incarnate, and to share meals with Jesus and to, uh, I, I was one of my favorite kind of scenes is when um, the disciple leaned against him uh, at the Last Supper in John. And just that type of profound closeness 
to God's presence. I mean, that that is, you know, but a lot of us don't experience that and we don't have that, uh, although we're promised that we will someday. And um, and so I think it's just such an important topic. And I, I hope uh, people who struggle with this, I hope that Jim's sermon was helpful for you. I just want to share a couple uh, other responses that people think thinkers have had about this problem over the years. And uh, it's related to some of the stuff that that Jim talked about. But, uh, you know, Soren Kierkegaard, uh, he believed that the reason why God is hidden uh, or the reason why God hides himself is uh, related to number three that Jim shared about relying on argumentation. Uh, Because what happens is we, we rely on this argumentation and we live in our heads and we end up kind of frittering away our lives on these sort of meaningless intellectual kind of objects that we kind of fixate on. They become little mental idols in our head and we devote our whole lives to them instead of actually relating to the God behind them, instead of living out the faith with our, uh, uh, our community, our brothers and sisters, instead of living out uh, the commands that Jesus gives us, we can uh, end up um, just soaking our lives away uh, in these meaningless intellectual projects. Um, so what what uh, uh, Soren says is that God keeps himself hidden so that uh, we have to take a leap of faith. Our arguments cannot get us to God. They can, they can, it's not like they're meaningless, but they can't, they can only go so far. And at some point we have to take a leap of faith. And, uh, and, and Soren in some places even goes so far as to say, we can't really get at anything about God. Uh, and, and so we, um, we have to just trust and we have to take this leap of faith. And I, that, that's a very compelling thing. And I think he's right about that meaningless intellectualism. Uh, however, one of the dangers of Soren Kierkegaard's position, as I see it, is that, he thinks that the less kind of um, the less intellectual certainty that we have about God, the greater our leap must be, and uh, and that means that in order to take that leap, we have to have greater passion, and uh, and so an implication of that is it seems like if faith is measured by how much passion we have. And passion is measured by how little knowledge we have. It seems like that would lead us to this weird situation where the less we know about God, the better. And because the less we know about God, the more passionate we must jump. And uh, and I have a hard time with that because, you know, first of all, we're told over and over again to seek God, and and uh, and, and it seems to me like God wants to be known. And uh, so, uh, and also the other related point is that for me. My passion about God grows every time I learn something new about God. And so uh, this idea that um, uh, the less we know about God, the better, and that that faith is all about passion, I, I don't think I don't think that works as as a solution. Uh, but I think it's right to point out how we can't just dwell in our intellectualism. We can't just dwell uh, with our arguments as as Jim said. Another person named Jacob Ross uh, says that we need to stop defining God. Uh, we have to realize that God is just so far beyond us that uh, that we can't define God. We can't put God in our little boxes uh, would be the sort of uh, popular level way of saying it. Uh, Jacob Ross says that 
It's better if we could think of God as the great nothing, as the mighty, ineffable one. A couple problems I have with this. Um, The first one is that uh, there's a fine line between the mighty, ineffable one and the mighty, irrelevant one. (laughs) In other words, uh, in in order for faith to have any meaning, there has to be some understanding of what God is like. And so to think of God as the great nothing, um, that's going to lead to a faith that's a great nothing. There's there's no there's no structure to uh, our faith in God if if God is really like that. Uh, the second thing I'd say is, um, you know, in regarding to stop defining God, I think that God wants to be defined. I mean, that's that's sort of what the Bible is. I mean, Jacob says that you know to not put God in our boxes, but. That's what the Bible is, is just a bunch of boxes for God. God is uh, love. God is um, uh, overflowing in steadfast love. He is. Uh, he does not let the guilty go punished. He, um, uh, he, he longs to gather his people like a hen gathers her chicks. I mean, there's just so many of these boxes of what God is like. Really, Jesus, too. I mean, that, talk about uh, kind of an antidote to the mighty ineffable one. You have... You have God actually becoming one of us in all of our uh, definability, in all of our structure, in all of our tangibleness. God becomes that. That's how much God wants us to put God in our boxes so that we understand what God is like, so that we can have meaningful relationship with uh, God. And again, as with Soren Kierkegaard, the fact that we're told over and over and over again to seek God, to seek God like a treasure, to seek God and he will be found by you. The fact that we're told that over and over and over again suggests that the Bible doesn't seem to think that God is a great nothing or a mighty ineffable one. The Bible doesn't seem to think that God is incomprehensible. Uh, Now, there might be things about God that are incomprehensible, but that's different than saying that God is totally incomprehensible. Uh, It it seems like... um, you, in order to say that the Bible is revelation, you have to say that something about God is revealed. If God is a mighty, ineffable one, well, that means that nothing is revealed, and we can't really call the Bible revelation. And so I think that we have to assume that there are some things about God that we can know. For me, um, uh, let me just add a couple uh, kind of intuitions that I carry with, and these are like uh, Jim's four points, and they might even sort of resonate with what he says. The first uh, intuition that I carry with me as I think about God's hiddenness is this. Uh, There has to be something about God that is really knowable in order for our faith in God to have any meaning to it, Uh, meaning by definition, has a definition. Meaning has to have a what, a whatness to it. And so uh, in in order for faith to be meaningful, there has to be something about God that we can know. That that doesn't mean that um, this isn't in any way a denial of God's hiddenness. In fact, the, the issue only comes up because God is hidden. In other words, what I'm saying is that, yes, God is hidden. And yet, even though God is hidden in the same way that, uh, I don't know, a homicide detective might appear on a crime scene and the killer is hidden, we can still find clues about them and and ascertain or form a picture of what this person might be like. So too with God, even though God is hidden, uh, we have revelation, we have reason, we have 
God's creative handiwork all around us. We have all of these kind of clues that we can use to develop, I think, meaningful pictures of of what God must be like. And of course, uh, we have Jesus Christ, who is the fullest revelation of God, who who is the light of God incarnate. And so, um, so yeah, God has to be knowable in at least some way. The second intuition that I carry with me is that the more we know about God, the greater our faith uh, should be. And uh, I, so this kind of pushes back against fideism or or Soren Kierkegaard's belief that uh, faith is all about passion and passion is measured by the leap that we take. And the leap is the space that we don't understand. Uh, that whole idea that that. F- the the less we know the greater our faith i think that's rubbish i think the i think that faith is covenant trust and in order to have covenant trust i need to know more about my covenant partner and and so i think that the more we know about god the greater our faith will be number 3 I agree uh with with uh jim and with some of these other thinkers that the act of seeking is important in of itself. I mean, there's something about the dedication required to continue to seek God that does something productive in us. Um, I think what did, uh, what did Jim call it? He called it, um, purposive evidence. That's what he called it. I, I like that phrase. The evidence that God gives us is for the purpose of drawing us out, to getting us to act, to getting us to seek, to chase. And there's something that's really good uh, for our spirits when we uh, hunt for God, when we when we reach out for God is, is the way that uh, uh, Acts 17 puts it. Um, in fact, uh, let me just read that really quick. Let's see if I have it here. Well, I had it right here. Yeah, here it is. Uh, Acts 17, 27, God created the universe, everything. The whole reason why God did all of this was so that humans would seek God and reach out to God. And, and, and so the whole point of everything is about that God wanted us to seek and to reach out to that kind of chasing after God, there's something that's how important that act is. And so um, uh, there is a great value in God's hiddenness, even though we're promised that God eventually will dwell with us. Number four, um, what, however we respond uh, to the problem of God's hiddenness, we have to endorse this idea that real knowledge of God should be distinguishable from the meaningless ivory tower stuff. And this is to, to Jim's point about not relying on arguments. We have to realize that the argument for the existence of God is not God. <laughs> the argument is this lame sort of piece of evidence or clue that we have that points to God, but Real transformation comes when we step into a relationship with that God that we have evidence for. And so uh, I agree with Jacob Ross and Soren Kierkegaard and Jim Bilby that uh, it's it's not enough to have these arguments. The arguments are a means to an end, which is to have this dynamic transformational relationship with with God, uh, especially in Jesus Christ. And uh, the fifth intuition that I have is that we should be careful not to assume that just because God is currently hidden, that that is the way that things had to be or the way that God wants it to be. And so um, uh, that that's just where 
you know, the, I think that the hiddenness of God, especially in the face of great suffering, especially in the face of injustice and evil and wickedness, uh, I think that God's hiddenness, um, I, I don't think that that's the way that God wanted it to be. I think that God's hiddenness is the primary uh, result of the fall, the primary result of uh, the sin of Adam. And God's continued hiddenness is the result of the fact that Satan is is uh, has dominion over the world right now. And so uh, to continue to seek God, knowing that God, uh, even though God can bring great things out of this hidden, uh, this hidden situation, I guess you could say, that's not necessarily the way that God wants it to be. And and to rely on the promise that God eventually longs to dwell with us and God will dwell with us. And there will be a time when God is not hidden, but God will be with his people. And so those five intuitions um, I've used to sort kind of sort of uh, secure my soul against the heaviness the existential dread of this sense that God, where are you, O Lord? Why do you hide your face from me? Um, those five intuitions have been really helpful for me. I hope they're helpful for you as well. Um, I will be preaching this Sunday. Um, I'm going to be kind of tapping into some of these similar ideas, but going in a totally different direction. So I hope you're able to join us on Sunday. And if not, swing around and catch Shauna and I here on the MuseCast. And uh, thanks everybody for tuning in and I hope you have a great week and I will see you for sure next Tuesday here. Uh, but I hope I see you on Sunday as well.